Now we're going to have a throwdown because Joe says this episode is worse than infection. Well, I need to moderate a debate. You can each have two minutes and then a minute rebuttal. And I will argue uh-huh. that this is 90 to 95% of an infection. You're saying it's close, but infection is worse. Joe, what is your perspective? The opposite. Obviously, obviously this episode is worse. In fact, this episode is six out of five infections. It breaks the infection scale. <laughs> and so it begins. Accessing file. Welcome to Grey Sector, a podcast by three friends who find that life is much easier if we just forget most of the things that happen to us, especially this episode. Yes. Today we are discussing the season two episode, The Long Dark. Okay, wait, pause, Sarah. We didn't actually have a spot to introduce ourselves. Well, (laughs) people know our names by now. Okay, we're not that famous. Did you see our downloads? I'm sorry. (laughs) Fine. Mike is going to insist that we actually introduce ourselves. So I'm Sarah. Now you're going to leave me hanging. That's, uh, I, I thought Joe was going to go. Okay. Okay. Sorry. I'm, I'm Mike. Sorry. <laughs> I'm Sarah. These are two random dudes I found. I just call them the you. So what are we talking about today, Sarah? Today we are discussing the season two episode, The Long Dark. First aired November 30th, 1994. Written by a fellow named Scott Frost and directed by another fellow named Mario DeLeo. As opposed to Larence Tilio, I got briefly excited, but then it turned out I just can't <laughs> tell Italian names apart. That's our next episode, Sarah. Don't worry. We'll get there. All those Italians, they look alike. Let me just gesture <laughs> wildly with my hands. Angry Italians, you can direct your anger at me. This is Scott Frost's only Babylon 5 episode. Thank God. <laughs> for a reason. He is uh, notable. I'm going to put notable in quotes here. For being a writer on the first run of Twin Peaks. And then pretty much nothing else except for a few episodes of the Kevin Sorbo Space Vanity Project Andromeda. Ah, Lieutenant Pierce, have I showed you my force land? Mario DeLeo will go on to direct a few more episodes in season two. Maybe they'll be better? He doesn't even list Babylon 5 on his IMDb. <laughs> That's how proud he is. He's very proud of his work. A long dark, all alone in the night, and now for a word. Oh, God. Other thoughts about this episode before we get started? Well, I had trouble getting into it. Because it's bad? Not just because it's bad. You see, the first time I watched it, I couldn't get the audio and video to sync. I have noticed that, actually. Comment to HBO's, like, fucking fix your audio sync issues. Sorry, keep going. It kind of was like a bad dub of a Hong Kong action flick where all the action had been replaced by inappropriate touching and PTSD. So (laughs) I prefer the the Hong Kong action flick. Ah, but I want to learn Kung Fu from you. Well, I think so. Yeah. In fact, I think I would prefer most things to this episode. (laughs) I I don't usually dislike even the bad Babylon five episodes, but this one, I, I kind of, kind of don't like this one really kind of hurt is it a coincidence that seasons one and two feature early episodes that ruin franklin as a character while a monster runs around is there some sort of a corollary to the franklin impossibility theorem which is like the franklin incompetence field theorem like something about franklin taking up screen time makes everyone else make worse decisions yeah (laughs) i don't know why 
I did notice that HBO has a content warning on this episode that says it's rated for language. Not like explicit language, it just says language. (laughs) So I'm not sure if that means the dialogue is incomprehensible. Maybe that's what they were trying to get across. It could be, yeah. We talked about having a drinking game for this episode, and you guys wisely vetoed that idea. But if folks want to select from maybe one or two rules from this list, one or two, and drink a beer. Don't drink a wine or a hard drink. Bear in mind, this game will kill you. Drink when there is a slow zoom. <laughs> drink when Franklin inappropriately touches a patient. <laughs> that only happens three or four, five, six times. Drink eight. when Sheridan's instructions make no sense and or are completely ignored <laughs> by everyone around him. Drink when the FX department goes on strike and refuses to put in the monster that all the actors are valiantly acting like they can see. <laughs> Are we going to put the original infection rule, which is drink when the pain becomes too great to bear? I'm going to argue this is the infection for season two. Or, you know, instead of doing all of that stuff, (laughs) just chug a bottle of Jack Daniels, go to the ER. It's more efficient and you don't have to watch the episode. (laughs) And so it begins. All right. So in the episode, which we obviously loved so much, we start in deep space, which they're very careful to delineate from shallow space. I don't know what the difference is. It all looks like space. It's all space. It's not even very deep. It's like right next to Babylon 5. Like they, there's a fucking jump gate, right? There. Just out of frame, there's one of those ropes with all the boobies that they put like in the pool to differentiate the deep end <laughs> from the shallow ends. <laughs> A decrepit human ship is drifting past Babylon 5, and since it's not using the jump gate, Ivanova just really has no idea how to react emotionally, so she summons Sheridan up to CNC. Meanwhile, in Down Below, a lurker that we will call Howling Mad Space Doc, or possibly Depression Old Barkley, played of course by Dwight Schultz. It's gotta be Depression Old Barkley. In any case, he wakes up from a bender and starts yelling that something's coming through the walls. So uh, did you notice his, I love this, his version of the Lord's Prayer? Which, mm-hmm. which at the end is like, Hail Mary, fuh, and then just stops. <laughs> like, just maybe that was a bad language. Like, what was that? Like, it's like a motif. For this character is he screws up prayers. He does it a bunch of times. <laughs> He's yet another Catholic, by the way. Yeah. I really need to go and count up the number of visiting people who happen to be Catholic. We got a rabbi once, but yeah, the Catholics are overrepresented. I agree. So our lurker is played by Dwight Schultz, man of many talents that people will recognize as Howling Mad Murdoch from the A-Team, Reg Barkley from, I almost said TMNT, and that would have been a great crossover. (laughs) That's different, yeah. TNG, and lots of other things. He does a lot of screaming in this episode, and I think he's a really good screamer. I just want to put that out there. I have to admit, until you brought it to my attention, I never noticed that about him. But thinking back on it, yeah, he does a lot of screaming in, in almost all of his roles, and he's he's pretty good at it. This is That's one ripper of a scream at the beginning of this one. Thank God they cast him because... Without it, this episode would have been... Six out of five infections. It'd be a full infection plus... 20% of an infection? Squeezed into the skin suit of a single episode. Like, <laughs> oh, God. The infection would become, like, recursive. A black hole of infection. No one is pure. No one. We get a new drug name, Ozones. I really wanted Lou Welch to pop up and do like the iced tea bet from Law and Order. Like, on the street, they call them Ozones. Get kids so high, they think they're in the stratosphere. 
But I, I looked, I could not find any reference to ozones in other episodes. I guess it was just this writer's go at a crazy drug. So I have an important question. Mm. Why are there windows in the floor of Down Below? <laughs> yeah. I, you don't have a floor window in your house? You, no. <laughs> no. I mean, it, oh, shit. I mean, there's many things wrong with my house. It, it makes sense that they'd be in the floor, right? Because that's where space is. Absolutely. It's where, where windows normally are. <laughs> I mean, with rotational gravity. Okay, I get that. But there's no windows anywhere else. Yeah, I don't know why they bothered. The only other window we've ever seen is in, there's one in the observation lounge and one in CNC. I think they're just constantly trying to remind us that the space station is circle. This is not Star Trek. That's what they're saying. See some contractors put those windows in without telling anyone. He got some windows. And he was like, shit, what do I do with these? I got to put them in. Get somebody to weld them real quick. So in terms of ship names, our decrepit ship is named the Copernicus, which is at least non-controversial. I don't know anything terrible about Copernicus, so... Good job there, Scott Frost. Earlier I mentioned that Depressional is Catholic, and he gets really, really upset that the Copernicus is arriving. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. I don't know that's deliberate, right? We can assume, right? He's like, I- I'm threatened by the approach of heliocentrism. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I think what they're trying to imply is that Murdoch can see the Copernicus through the tiny window. Yeah, he's like sensing it. He has some it. ESP. But the window is far too tiny, yeah. There's no way he'd be able to see that. So we go to medium space, and the cute little drones with the T-Rex arms Arr! are bringing the Copernicus into dock. They're adorable. My favorite thing. The Copernicus is very insistent that it comes in peace. Like, it just keeps saying that. In English. I guess they were hoping that the aliens they eventually run into would... Speak English? Oh, Go in pieces. In the Zocalo, our lurker Murdoch climbs up on the bar to preach that Judgment Day is a coming, and he pesters Shakar and Londo until Garibaldi comes to the rescue and hauls him off to the space drunk tank. I have walked in the valley of good. Keep on walking. Hurry, Ambassador, he's gaining. You with the hair. Was Londo examining jewels there? He's just looking at them by eye, which means one of two things. Either the Centauri have really good macroscopic vision, or Londo's just pretending to buy jewels to make Jakar jealous. <laughs> so this is like an open a cart with jewels? My concern was, what went away? The hat stand or the drug dealer that Talia uses? Because someone's going to be sad. Or the florist stand. It may well be the floor stand, but I would point out that something doesn't have to go away. The Zocalo's big. There's room for all sorts of carts. I do want to know more about the professional licensing process for missionaries, (laughs) because there's at least three categories. Apparently, a Class C missionary license is the one that allows you to rant at the top of the bar. C is for climbing on things. A is for asking for money. I don't know what B is. You know, if there's a licensing process, what does it involve? There's got to be some testing on the texts, right? Which is probably how Garibaldi figured out that Depressional here does not have a license because he was like messing up a Matthew 718 quote about evil fruit and just riffing on the Bible verses. Wait, wait, Matthew 718 isn't actually a thing, is it? I mean, it, there's, there are books in the Bible and then there's verses. In no, it. no, no, no. I, I, I know that Matthew 718 is a 
thing. I was just wondering if if it was quoting evil fruit. Is that actually a... Are there fruits you shall know them? Isn't it that one? Jesus Christ. Okay. The paraphrase. But the thing is, it doesn't have anything to do with evil root, which is what Depressional is getting into. So I can't decide if this is my alien Jake crew member for the episode. But in the scene, there is a grome sitting at the bar eating half a pineapple. Pineapple guy, yeah. He's just deeply irritated and gets up with his pineapple and leaves. Murdoch also is fallen prey to the common misconception on Babylon 5 that human and humanoid mean the same thing. That's, yeah. He refers to the aliens as non-humanoid types, and they all have two arms and two legs and a head, my dude. Maybe they have taken exception to the term humanoid. In their language, it, it would be drosinoid or grominoid. Centaurish. No, that makes it sound like people are half horse. <laughs> Back up in CNC. Based on the absence of the letters USS, but not on the presence of an English broadcast or the name Copernicus for the ship, our crack command team figures out that this is a century-old sleeper ship from Earth. We have some nice expository dialogue that starts with everyone agreeing that they have no idea what this is, and then 20 seconds into the scene, Sheridan is like, oh yeah, this is a sleeper ship, and it's from 100 years ago. And There have been many Copernicus... Copernicus? I guess? Yeah, it's just been lots of them, okay? And all of them have been lost in space. So Sheridan just wasn't sure which one it was until he saw the absence of the (laughs) prefix. He just wanted to be sure that this wasn't like the USCSS Copernicus, you know, which got boarded by that alien and it had to self-destruct it. Or the Mm -hmm. UNN Copernicus or... The UPS Copernicus. Yeah, was shipping packages in deep space. Yeah. And, uh, or NCIS Copernicus. Oh, God. Also <laughs> lost, tragically, when Mark Harmon died. <laughs> My favorite part of the scene on the bridge is when Garibaldi exposes the massive plot hole in the center <laughs> of this episode. Yeah. By asking, what's it doing way out here? What is it doing way out here? Because... That's an early deep range exploration ship, and it doesn't go through jump gates. So 100 years is just way too short of a time for it to have reached Babylon 5, which is anywhere from 20 to 50 light years from Earth, according to what source you you use. Even if it was moving at like 20% of the speed of light, it still wouldn't be there. And we saw how fast it was moving. And also the probability, some listener who actually knows how to do math will do this math, but the probability of it being anywhere near Babylon 5 or anything that is human occupied in within 500 years is like one in a billion or one in 10 billion or something. I mean, it's it's nuts. Like, it doesn't make any sense. This doesn't seem to have been the best thought out exploration plan, but I do hope they at least aimed it at something originally. They just send it to a random location. Yep. Go out there. I'm hoping it was pointed at a star or a moon or something. So they pull this ship into the dock, and then all of our most senior officers immediately go on board it with no quarantine or precautions <laughs> of any kind. Not even any breathing gear? Nope. Nothing? Only thing they bring are the largest flashlights I have ever seen. They find two cryogenic freezer pods, which house one rubber corpse, one attractive guest star, and one foreboding <laughs> gust of wind. Our attractive guest star sickle is Anne-Marie Johnson, who is a certified 90s That Lady, who you may recognize from In Living Color, Melrose Place, or Girlfriends. 
Christopher Frankie seems to believe that twinkling chimes are the official sound effect of Pretty Woman because he also uses them when Delenn turns human and he uses them like every single time AMJ is on the screen in this episode. Based on later developments in the episode, the foreboding gust of wind that mm-hmm. comes out when they open up her pod, yeah. I think is mm-hmm. supposed to be the monster. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm very confused about the monster's motivations and like methods. What is it doing? What is? Why doesn't it just eat all the people that are right there with their flashlights? Are you, are you talking about the foreboding gust of wind that escapes when Franklin just opens mm-hmm. the cryo-freezing tube? Just Yeah, about that. Opens a tube designed to suspend the life functions of a person and keep their body extremely cold. That he just uh-huh. opens, just yep, picks just, it right up. Yeah, so that would have two immediate effects. I think one, it would speed up whatever process was killing her that caused him to open the container, and also number two, the other effect it would have is it would just kill her. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. we'll just move Pat. Maybe it's just some kind of really not. Cool cryo freezing. That's sort of a gentle warming oven. It's, it's, a, it's a cryo air conditioner. It's more of tube. an incubator kind of thing. We also talk in the, these scenes about how the Centauri got to Earth when the Centauri had jump gate technology and the and Earth didn't. And I'm wondering why the Centauri never tried to conquer Earth. Is it just racism? Like, is there just human privilege? My theory on this is that based on the time frame, they occupy the Narn homeworld for a hundred years mm-hmm. and they ran into the humans almost a hundred years ago, mm-hmm. maybe a little more maybe a little less. I think they were like 10 or 20 years into the Narn occupation. They're just overstretched at that point. Yeah. They didn't want another, you know, project in air quotes. Ha. Huh. I always thought it was just because humans had like really advanced spaceships. They just didn't have jump tech. We sort of talk about how earth is militarily capable, but we don't, really see it yeah but it's not very surprising i mean what's the first thing that humans are going to do when they get into space like what we've been doing this whole time like blow up other humans it's how it's how we do that is how we roll so in the elevator of dr caligari franklin and team are battling to save attractive guest star using bright lights and injections of what looks like mountain dew i love the flashes that's going to be really helpful when restarting hearts (laughs) maybe inducing seizures impacts the cardio system yeah, where did that medical team come from? I'd like to know. Couldn't Franklin have just waited if they were right there? And if not, like, where did they come from? That would have caused him to miss the opportunity to carry her around. Oh, uh, touching. You're right. That is the first inappropriate touching that he does right there. On the other hand. Garibaldi goes to visit Murdoch, who is having flashbacks to the war and getting sneered at by the security goon who doesn't understand how knives work. (laughs) This establishes that there was ground combat in the war. And I try to understand why that would have made sense for the Minbari. Yeah. I had always assumed previously that they had just flown straight at Earth. Your skepticism and confusion is really logical because none of that makes any sense. The Minbari would not have bothered to take over this moon or that moon of humans if they could just nuke it from space, which they could. It should be noted that Depressional's experience is not impacted by this since he was actually attacked by the by the monster, not mm. by men, any Minbari. But. Yeah, true. But he was there because the Minbari were there. He was at a listening post. They were setting up like deep range radar, you know. Communications make sense. Why they attacked Garibaldi on Mars, I have no idea. Just didn't like his face. 
Yeah, they were like, oh, this is dude Garibaldi down there. Let's go fuck him up. <laughs> Somehow we sense that he sucks at his job. I may have missed a staff meeting. Hansen, who's a complete a-hole, is like the second or third person to say that they missed the war. <laughs> so how long was the war? I mean, maybe they're trying to imply that he's too young. He's not too young. No, Sorry, he's not. He's, he's not. not. Was the war like a week? Was he backpacking? What? How do you miss the war? It was three years. What the fuck, Hanson? So. Which also makes no sense. <laughs> that does, I, mean, I mean, unless the humans have a huge number of outposts or whatever, the Minbari are so technologically more advanced. I don't think it would take them more than a couple of months to take over all of human space. I do want to call out Hansen. He really stands out as as a great example of why we call them goons. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he's advocating for spacing our poor, delusional, drug-addicted Murdoch. And why? Because he's being personally inconvenienced. That's all. (laughs) He. He's just like, yeah, this guy's a veteran, but, you know, maybe we should just space him. And even Garibaldi, who's like pro-spacing people, he's like, you know, dude, dude, it's, it's like PTSD, okay? Chill out. I did say out loud to my television when Garibaldi was kind of rebuking Hanson. I'm like, he learned it from watching you, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> this is definitely not good. Back on the Copernicus, Ivanova is trying to repair a theremin, as far as I can tell, because that's definitely the best use of the Exo's time, and there's no one else on the station who could do that. The apparently empty ship starts to growl at her, but I'm sure that's fine. I love in the Copernicus, like the light walls, it felt like very Star Trek original series, Mm -hmm. right? Like, there's just these huge light walls of just red lights, these giant grids of lights. Nothing has any labels on it or anything. It's like, I hope you memorized what all these lights mean. It's not like they'd be using it. They're asleep. <laughs> What's, why is it there? You guys remember Airplane 2? Blinking and beeping and flashing. They're flashing and they're beeping. I can't stand it anymore. They're blinking and beeping and flashing. Why doesn't somebody pull the plug? I'm all right. I'm all right. One thing that's missing from the whole cast and crew of Babylon 5, there's no chief engineer. We don't have a Geordie. JMS wanted to stay away from things like Technobabble. And having an engineer around just tempts writers to go, oh, well, the engineer will just come up with some bullshit excuse. Yeah. They'll polarize the deflector shields and reverse the Heisenberg compensators. And yeah. Uh, It's a choice. I'm not saying it's good or bad. Especially considering that the station seems to be constantly on the edge of just falling apart. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. This is not a clear and present danger. I must read the rule book again. In the drunk tank, Murdoch wakes up from his bender and evades Garibaldi's attempts to bond over their infantry experiences. You know, thinking about the good times. I can't deal with the word gropo as an abbreviation for ground pounder because that should be growpow. <laughs> yeah, but that sounds... Oh boy. Yeah, that doesn't sound good. So the big reveal of this scene is actually that therapists exist in the Babylon 5 universe, and Garibaldi has been in therapy, which is amazing. Can you imagine what he was like before therapy? (laughs) (laughs) This does not prove the existence of lawyers, insurance agents, or psychiatrists. Therapists could be anything. You could just be a psychologist. You could be a social worker. We had a lawyer once. It was Ivanova's ex. 
Wait, Ivanova's old boyfriend was a lawyer? Yeah, Malcolm the sweater criminal? Yeah, that's true. The sweater <laughs> criminal was a lawyer. I remember that. The thing I love about this scene is where Garibaldi is like... Uh, you were about to accuse the Centauri ambassador of being in league with the devil, which might not be far from the truth. He called that one pretty good, actually. It's a nice little Easter egg drop there, yeah. I'm trying to think if he followed the Garibaldi investigative method to reach that conclusion, but I think he just somehow landed straight there. You are going to resist, I hope. In Lab Med, Med Bay, Med thing, uh, in the first of many extremely icky moments, Anna Marie Johnson wakes up to find Franklin tenderly stroking her hair. Uh, 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 God. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. The command staff figure out that her husband died of organ failure, which apparently in this context means, let me check my notes, his organs are not in his body. Stephen learned a different definition of organ failure. He's so casual. He's like, hmm, it looks like organ failure. And they're like, huh, really? And he's like, yeah, his organs aren't there. Burying the lead. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to put it below the fold. So yes, the husband was murderized. And Sheridan and Garibaldi are going to get to the bottom of it eventually once they give Stephen enough time to finish stroking the lead suspect's hair. Yeah. <laughs> the combination of Stephen petting the hair, which... Was pretty creepy. And then saying, I'll take care of you. The scene makes your skin crawl. First he says, it's all right, I'm a doctor. And I'm like, are you a hair doctor? Because if not, hands off. That's why I'm petting you, nice lady. I thought this was just your least favorite scene because you have to drink six times in 30 seconds. <laughs> Anna Marie Johnson explains that she and her husband worked for a commercial research group that somehow was going to make money by just yeeting astronauts in random directions in space to see if any of them bumped into profitable aliens. Don't understand the corporate model here. Okay, odds that Elon Musk was involved. (laughs) (laughs) So she's sort of upset that it's been 100 years and her husband is dead and the director is going to make her endure a slow zoom, but she can't cry. Why? Why? Why couldn't she cry? Because cryogenesis... No, no, but rise why? up your tear ducts. Which, if you think about it, is like a debilitating medical thing she'd have to deal with for the rest of her life. Like, your eyes require moisture. Is this a temporary thing? This isn't explained very well. But why did they just choose some. Can she not cry? <laughs> did they did not want to mess up her makeup or something? She's on Melrose Place. I know she's fake cried. Like, I don't. It just seems like they come up with this random symptom. And it doesn't matter. It has no impact later. Also, I found it really funny that Franklin interrupts his autopsy because one of the doctors comes up and is like, the patient is asking for you, doctor. And he's like, oh, I got to go. And he gets there and she doesn't, <laughs> she has no idea who he is. Are you the doctor who is earlier who is petting me? Like He was like, I would like to see Dr. Grabby Hands. When the slow zoom is happening and she's saying, like, what have I done? Honey, honey, it's it's just the bad director. Don't beat yourself up. You're doing your best, AMJ. She's fine as an actress. She's given nothing. She's there to be pretty and troubled, and she does it. Over in Docking Bay 4 slash hazardous waste disposal, Murdoch wanders in to yell at the Copernicus and then run away. Seems like a productive scene that went exactly as it was planned. They hold the shot for a really long time. And I'm like, okay, we're going to get a special effects monster. We're going to get a special effects monster. And then they just cut away. I don't know what you're saying. The visual effects of having no monster being visible are just great. 
I think what happened is they just ran in a budget and then in post they were like, okay, we're just gonna make the monster invisible. I think the director forgot to tell the, the effects shop that they needed a monster. They're like, so we did everything. We're done. The ship is a visual effect. Yeah, they, they got done with that and they were like, okay, here it is. It's like, <laughs> okay, okay, now put in the monster. And they're like, no, no, you. this is the shot. You, this, what are you talking about? We spent the budget putting windows on the exterior of the station. What do you want, man? What I was confused by is why does Depressional Barkley act like he recognizes the ship specifically? Because he's never seen the ship. He's never seen the ship. It doesn't seem science-based. It's like ESP or I don't get it. They can't decide if this thing is a predator or a ghost. I thought it was just hanging out on the ship and that's why it was growling it. But then, like, the, they had the lights flickering in the elevator. I'm like, is a monster in the elevator? Did it go to bed lab and then come back? It's very clearly on the ship for a while, and then it's on the station for a while, and then it's eating people, and then... Person. Just eats one. Like, why is this a big crisis? Like, we've lost... We've lost more people in tertiary scenes in other episodes, and no one cared. <laughs> we lost, like, a, a hundred Drazi? At one time. But they were drowsy, Sarah. They're not really people. I mean. There's a whole council room filled with dead drowsy and no one panicked. It was no like, oh, yeah. shit. I told him to leave the pulp in. That's the best part. So after the commercial break, we find out that another effect of long-term cryogenesis is that you recover from widowhood really quickly. Um, <laughs> like, like within the day. A couple hours. So AMJ is out on a date with Steven and she asks him to catch him up, asks him to catch her up on the last hundred years. But I guess he hasn't been watching history channel because he gives this kind of patronizing speech that contains no actual information. (laughs) Stuff happened. And then some other stuff did. It was cool. (laughs) Shakar wanders up to be foreboding at her and tells her to go back to the past because he thinks time travel is a thing. (laughs) Like that's not in her power, my dude. And then she faints like a Victorian maiden. So all of that happens. <laughs> she she got the vapors. <laughs> Her corset was too tight. So his explanation for jump gates was really interesting. Except for how he mansplains <laughs> to the recently cryogenically frozen crew member of a deep range exploration craft that before 98 years ago, i.e., Two years before she left, we were pretty much limited to our own solar system because we didn't have jump gates. Yeah, he just might have said, uh, yeah, before jump gates, we had to send out people in these slow ships. We cryogenically freeze them. What does he think they told her about her own job? We didn't talk about the scene earlier where he's like, I don't have the exact time that you were in cryo. And I'm like, ask her what year it was when she left. (laughs) Yeah, it's not hard. And then do the math, my man. This is so nonsensical. None of this makes any sense. And behind them, there is a Narn wandering around with a giant <laughs> gift present. Yeah. And I'm desperate to know what party they are going to, and I want to go. Strangely, I have the opposite reaction to a Narn with a large present. Yeah, it sounds very promising, but it's going to be an awkward orgy or eat this leather-wrapped pig heart or why has this guy wearing antique human glasses put a bicycle wheel around my neck? I would still go. Rather than hang out with Steven on his date, I would 100% go to Narn torture orgy party. (laughs) We also have the Talia Winter's narrative-length fallacy in this description of the Earthman-Bari War. Because we got our asses kicked and then they surrendered is not a long story. Yeah. <laughs> I find it a little strange that her only real response 
that all the stuff that admittedly Stephen Franklin's being pretty vague, but she's like, wait, there's still war? Why does that surprise you, lady? It's only a hundred years later. So after she faints, Stephen brings her to his quarters because I quote, they were closer than Medbay. <laughs> oh. And I'm like, the gift shop is closer than either of them, but you don't take her there because that doesn't make sense. Did, did you verify this, by the way? Did you look at the schematics? I, I haven't yet. I will. Narrator, they are not. <laughs> so Stephen has advanced to hand and face stroking. Double A. <laughs> AMJ realizes that she is the prime suspect in her husband's murder. And then to calm her down, Stephen kisses her and then blames her for kissing him. <laughs> Yeah. I think this is worse than Jeff and Catherine. It's so much worse. From a crawling skin perspective, it's worse. From a repetitive perspective, it's not worse yet. See, what you guys don't realize, she is just under Dr. Franklin's specific medical care. All the touching and stroking and kissing, that's just something he does with all his patients. <laughs> um, What about that alien kid that the parents killed? Him? You see, years ago, when he was shacked up with his archaeologist lover <laughs> slash mentor, you know, he was given some antique Victorian era textbooks as a gift. Using them, he diagnosed AMJ with hysteria, and he was just about to cure her. It's all normal. This is standard of care stuff. Next, he's going to diagnose her with a wandering womb. <laughs> <laughs> I've been trying to reread some Jane Austen lately, but this is... Hey, hey, that's Regency. Don't blame Jane for this. But in purple, I am stunning. So in the Zocalo, Garibaldi intercepts Murdoch, who's back on his Judgment Day bullshit, despite not having the Class C license. And then we have this deeply confusing monster cam scene where there's a grome who's like maybe trying to tame the monster. I don't know what the director is telling this person to do. He's like trying to pet the evil (laughs) monster. And then he gets his organs eaten. Garibaldi figures out that the Copernicus passed through the spatial neighborhood when Amos's detachment was getting slaughtered. Sheridan gives Stephen a totally deserved telling off about letting his hair stroking get in the way of a criminal investigation, but then stops short of doing anything about it to advance this investigation or prevent Stephen from getting his insides munched if our attractive guest star is the monster. <laughs> My favorite thing about the scene is the Drazi who offers Garibaldi the technical pasta. <laughs> no thanks. I'm trying to cut down. That was how did they do that? Muppets. Puppetry. They were like, hey Jim Henson, you, you got like five minutes. We we just need a little thing. And he was just like, uh sure, yeah man, what what do you need? Just a tentacle? <laughs> Not many people know that Jim Henson super into tentacles. <laughs> <laughs> You've seen Dark Crystal, haven't you? Ez? If this whole episode had been Garibaldi and Murdoch talking about the war and then yeah. just shenanigans at the bar. It would have been much better. It would have been great. And it, we wouldn't have ruined Steven's character in the process. Yeah, so Murdoch says to Garibaldi that he saw death come off the ship from the past and he saw it do the same thing during the war. But he didn't. This no way matches the story he tells later. Well, it doesn't even match what we saw. We saw him go up to the ship, stare at it. It growled. And then someone was like, hey, you over there. And he runs off. I think this may be a result of whatever decision led to the lack of an actual effect. A lot of problems would have been solved had they remembered to include the monster. (laughs) Hey, the scene, Franklin Impossibility Theorem. 
in action. Put, put a dollar in the Franklin Impossibility Theorem jar. Couldn't have been alien life. I searched that ship. I'm Dr. Frank. Couldn't possibly be that. <laughs> All these organ failures at the same time, it's just coincidence. People lose their organs all the time. They just fall out of their bodies. It's just not really widely reported. Right. Yeah. He also says that the organs are definitely not on the ship. So I have <laughs> to assume there's a room on that ship that just says organ storage. They're just all in there. <laughs> it's a cabinet. They didn't open it. Yeah. Also, the, the only implication of there couldn't possibly be an alien that did it is the lady I'm currently dating is definitely the murderer. That's the only possible other explanation. So he's vehemently arguing, no, no, AMJ did eat his organs. I, I know because I did a thorough job checking. He has a little <laughs> trouble with inference, our Steven. Speaking of the eating of the organs. <laughs> Listener, I feel that you need to know that Joe is just gesturing with his bottle of grappa at this point. <laughs> Why does it only eat the organs? It clearly prefers red wine. <laughs> Which goes well with organs. And fava beans, eh? <laughs> so I derive the monster is either from Napa or there's a few spots in Italy. I don't understand this monster. So this monster can just kill a ton of people instantly. Yeah. It can hang around and siphon off people's life force slowly. And then it can just eat a bunch of organs if it wants to. All at once. Yep. No. Why? What's it for? Is it a soldier? Is it sentient? Is it, what is it supposed to be? The last thing I find just hilarious about this scene is it's yet another example of things moving way too fast on Babylon mm -hmm. 5 because they're down there in Med Bay. The doctor's all, his organs were all taken away. And Sheridan's like, the council, they want to know about this murderer. They've called this emergency meeting. Now, the council has already called the meeting, which mm -hmm. means that they did some serious Garibaldi-level deductive work here. A 100-year-old ship arrived with, surprise, a dead guy on it. And then a completely unrelated homeless <laughs> lurker dies in a totally yeah. different part of the station. And they're like, boom, the med lab gossip mill is just insane. I mean, there are a lot of people in there and Franklin is yelling about how he doesn't sleep with his patients. I have a headcanon for this. <laughs> My headcanon is that somebody on the League of Non-Aligned Prosthetics has started a true crime podcast. Oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. Only murders on the station, eh? <laughs> Over in the council chamber, a surprisingly, as Joe pointed out, well-informed League of Non-Aligned Prosthetics led in this case by a Markab who looks kind of like somebody shaved and then spray tanned Christopher Lloyd. Played by Kim Strauss, who we all remember as the Drazi Purple Eater. The voice actually is very distinct. So Kim Strauss tells Sheridan that he believes AMJ either is or brought with her a soldier of darkness from a thousand years ago. Londo is unhelpful. Shakar is very interested. Sheridan takes the position, I agree with you. However, I'm going to manfully refuse to do anything about it because you can't boss me around with your accurate information. Or logic, yeah. <laughs> well, they threatened to do something about it without his permission, which makes him very, very angry. This cannot stand. He's very passive, this whole script. It's like he's sort of paralyzed by an action. Sometimes he tells people to do things, but most of the time he's just like, let's just wait and see what happens. In the last scene, he was very much actively telling Stephen what to do, right? 
things not to do. Yeah, but the instructions did not specifically say don't paw at your clients creepily or perhaps why the fuck are you dating a woman who is your patient who found out she was a widow yesterday. He should have just used the excuse, uh, oh, uh, complications of cryostasis. Yep, yep. (laughs) The women, when they come out of it, they just have to date. The only way to, like, get their tear ducts working again. So last time we had a monster on the station, we had the mind flayer thing. Nakaline feeder, yeah. Season 1, episode 14, Grail. Yeah. My memory is they actually looked for it. This does not appear to be a course of action that occurs to anyone. In their defense, they were only looking in one room in that episode. They didn't bother (laughs) looking before that. But you're right. In this episode, they're just like, what are you going to do? It's invisible, to be fair. They don't know that. (laughs) Because I don't think it was intended to be invisible. It it wasn't originally invisible. Post was expensive. What are you going to do? So Londo's outfits are starting to shift darker, um, which according to the Lurker's Guide was intentional to show his moral decline. Before working with Mr. Morden, we saw Londo solicit bribes, plot murder, take revenge, drink to excess, gamble (laughs) with other people's money, expose publicly his genitalia, celebrate genocide, defend slavery, and express a hope that they would soon return to the good old days when they were aggressively exploiting other civilizations and dominating the galaxy with military force. So really, realistically, how much further can he decline? Well, if you put it that way. You don't even have to use Mr. Morden's stuff to say Londo has no moral compass. Look, Wardrobe is really excited about his darker coat. Just let him have it. His actual overcoat is still the purple season one overcoat, but I think he has the cloak that's really dark. Londo's uh, wardrobe is going systematically more and more navy slash black. There's a weird cut with Shakar at the end of the scene. Yeah. Where like, Shakar has a schemy face. Is he involved? No, no. No, he's not. No, he's not. (laughs) So in Garibaldi's quarters, Scott Frost decides that it's very important to take a moment in a busy script to make sure that we, the viewers, are aware that Garibaldi's chest hair is lush and thriving. (laughs) Somebody has to take up the mantle. The chest mantle. The mantle of Sinclair. Garibaldi wakes up from what's implied to be a nightmare about the war. He rousts Murdoch from the drunk tank. You're out of your mind. Oh, that's a matter of some debate in the medical community. And asks him to take him to the monster with no backup and without telling anybody. Cool. Good plan. Good plan. <laughs> great plan. They don't find it with their great plan. But then they do share stories about how their units got slaughtered. Garibaldi's by the Minbari and Murdoch's by the monster, who kept him alive as a snack. Murdoch decides that he's going to keep going after it. And then he accidentally turns a corner and triggers Garibaldi's lack of object permanence. <laughs> I'd like to think that he was going to go down there to try to smother it with his furry pectorals, but <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't know what he was going to do. Let's yeah. go down and get eaten. It can walk through walls, Garibaldi. What is finding it going to do? So remember when Sheridan said that he wanted a watch put on AMJ that wasn't Steven? Oh, yeah, yeah. That didn't happen, apparently, because she's just hanging out in the ship by herself. And then Steven walks up. What you didn't reference, Sarah, was that Sheridan told security. That was your clue that it Hmm. wasn't going to happen. I'm just saying. Garibaldi couldn't hear him because the chest hair was muffling his ears. (laughs) Stephen decides that this is a really great time to have the define the relationship conversation. What better time when standing over where your husband died recently? In your haunted spaceship. 
like 12 hours ago, but yeah. So AMJ admits that she thinks the monster was on the ship using her to stay alive. And now the station is in danger. And Steven is like, this is totally new information, even though he has two dead people in Medbay. <laughs> you know, I think that this scene is actually one of the ones that ruins Franklin in this episode, because he, he openly just admits that even though he has been macking on everything with two legs, his career, it comes first. You're just, you're just a fling, AMJ. This is the point in the episode where I was like, I give up. I'm surrendering. There is nothing rational happening. I think infection goes nonsensical a little earlier than this. We have definitely veered into infection land. Yeah, this is banana crackers. As evidenced by the next scene in Down Below, where Garibaldi finds Murdoch's scarf. Yeah. He hears him scream, and then he turns around and he goes to talk to Sheridan. <laughs> <Please>. <laughs> Command staff has a conversation about the victim's testimony about being eaten and a deep misunderstanding about the difference between a parasite and a symbiote. And they decide that obviously the monster is controlling AMJ. Sheridan's command is just to make sure they're ready for the murderous monster, but not actually go find it. Gotta wait till it makes its move. He says specifically that the monster is going to come to them. And I'm like, there's 250. Well, now there's... 249,999 people on your station. <laughs> but it could still take a while before he shows up at your office. I don't... Earlier, we learned that Depressional was the only survivor of the listening post. Yet in this scene, Sheridan's like, official accounts blame the Mimbari for the attack. And I'm like, do the official accounts say how many survivors there were, Sheridan, and who they were? Because maybe the only guy left alive would be the person to trust also i don't understand how a monster taking a piece of someone allows them to locate the monster is the implication here that one of their organs is in the monster i guess no 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 no, it seems to be the implication yeah no no no, no, this doesn't i'm gonna take your complete nonsense and raise you a what the fuck how does taking part of people make them thin yet eat none of the organs like did you notice it fed on her but first off, she's she's fairly thin, but she's not like eighty pounds, and she doesn't she doesn't have like a missing lung or kidney. It's getting sustenance by stroking her hair. Depressional also describes in his contretemps with Garibaldi that he was down to like eighty pounds. I don't know how much grappa <laughs> it takes Joe to get to the word contretemps, <laughs> but I've known him for years, and he's never used that word until now. <laughs> Murdoch says that he was 80 pounds or whatever, and then the rescue party showed up. Yeah. So did the monster ignore the rescue party, let the rescue party take Murdoch, and then decide to hop on the Copernicus when it swung by? Or did the Copernicus go by first and it left Murdoch alive? And then I don't know what the monster is trying to do here. What is its motivation? I was trying to find a good name that would rhyme with Hannibal Lecter, but there's nothing that really goes. Hannibal Spectre? God damn it. You had eight seconds. Cannibal Spectre. Oh, fuck. You loosened the pun jar for me. So Garibaldi goes rogue for Garibaldi and decides to ask AMJ to help him locate the monster anyway. Even though Sheridan told him just to sit around and wait for it to eat a few more people. Steven insists on coming along. And in, I think, the second most baffling choice in a deeply baffling episode, the big discovery of the monster happens off camera. And Ivanova and Sheridan have to tell us they're going to follow with rifles in the tactical ski squad. It is cute when Sheridan finally decides to give some orders, but Ivanova has anticipated all of them. 
I just figure Ivanova has those two PPG rifles stashed under the console just in case she gets the order to like go full ham on some reporter. You are going to resist, I hope. Two rifles just ah! Also, during their uh journey down to find the still invisible monster, Sheridan passes through a whole bunch of rooms, including one that has a huge amount of leaking steam and a big sign. Which they zoom in on for reasons. It's, it's a radiological hazard sign. And I don't know what kind of sh- space stations Sheridan has run in the past, but a room filled with leaking steam with a radiological hazard sign would cause concern. Plutonium is really dangerous only if you inhale. Oh, shit. Almost as though they need some kind of an engineer. We didn't talk about the scene where Murdoch is sneaking around in Down Below and there's two dudes in the maintenance coveralls arguing about how broken everything is. <laughs> so in Down Below, Ivanova and Sheridan come to the rescue of Garibaldi and Murdoch, who are fighting the monster who at this point I just had to admit to myself was invisible. This would be the point at which you show the monster it's not there. It's not like invisible in a cool predator way. It's just invisible in a we-don't-have-money-to-show-you-this-way. <laughs> so there's this totally incomprehensible fight scene, because the actors have been told to act like they can see a monster. Yeah. Yeah, what the ever-loving fuck. So eventually they all decide to act like they blew it up, and there's no budget for a corpse, but at least Murdoch lives. That is all I can say about that. There's like a wobbly black form for like two seconds. They give you this kind of gremlins outline at the very, very end. When they're shooting at it, but yeah. It, like, dematerializes and moves at one point. And then that crappy effect and the crappy effect of it apparently dying are exactly the same. So mm-hmm. I was waiting for several seconds. I was like, is it dead now? Is it? Like, yeah. It can move through walls. So it's it's a little mysterious how they establish, okay, we definitely killed it this time. Yeah, definitely. You can see how there's no body. So we definitely got it. What is the thing? What does it want? What is it doing? Don't understand anything about this monster. <laughs> they stand there and Murdoch's like, it's too smart for that. It can smell a trap. Also, it can hear. And you've just described the entire trap within its hearing. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense either because it, there are dozens of ships that leave every single day. Why didn't it just eat a few random aliens that we don't care about on down below because they're not Centauri and then move to another ship, right? And just take off. Even worse, in my opinion, the Copernicus never docked with Murdoch's outpost. It could actually have just left Babylon 5 to the whatever is the latest ship that's leaving without even going through the docking bay or anything. It'd just go right there. Go through the wall and right there. We assume the monster is dead. We are in med bay. This is the point at which my notes say praying for the sweet release of death. AMG lets Stephen down gently, either because she needs to go back to Earth or because she has realized that he's an enormous creep. Ivanova tells Sheridan that she figured out that when the monster came on board the Copernicus, it changed the course to Zahadum on the rim, which is a planet name we've heard before. They discuss how they're definitely about to be invaded by an ancient enemy, and they're totally not going to do a single thing about it. Let's just wait and see what the enemy's going to do. I am rooting for the enemy at this point. I'm so annoyed. <laughs> I just have to say to the listener, you need to see Sarah's face. She is... I am tetchy. In the button of the episode, Shakar, surrounded by many candles, looks at an illustration in the Book of Shaquan about what the monster would have looked like had they remembered to put it in the episode. Looks pretty cool. (laughs) So from this scene, we are to believe that the path from a random base where Depressional was stationed to Zaha Doom leads directly past Babylon 5. That's... Amazing. What an amazing coincidence. Yeah. 
Also, when was Soldier hoping to get there? 10,000 years? <laughs> yeah, it would have been a while. So it's eating a human, what, like every 50 years or maybe 20 years? So so this plan is going to work great if it has hundreds of humans on board and is going to live for at least 2,000 years. They said that Copernicus lost oxygen when the thing came on board. Either it decided to open the door, even though it could go through walls, or it has to breathe oxygen. None of this makes any sense. I hate it. <laughs> if I may ask, does this torment end? Do you guys need to take a shot before we discuss our thoughts on this God's forsaken episode? I need to make a note that I literally drank an entire 720 milliliter bottle of sake for this episode. Oh my God. It says the man who drank a bottle of grappa. So Joe and I are going to have to throw it out at some point. I think it's now, my man. <laughs> Let's get ready to rumble. I'm not sure Joe is right that this is six infections, but this might be 4.99 out of five infections. You've raised your number of infections by quite a bit. I have. I was saying four to 4.5, and now I'm saying like, oh, God, it's, oh, <laughs> Jesus. So many things to make you wonder. Like, so this is a monster hunt, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a very classic science fiction trope, dangerous thing wandering around. Some of the best science fiction films of all time are monster hunts. The Thing, Alien, Aliens, the only two alien movies. No- nothing else exists. Yeah, that's right, Joe. Yeah. Pitch Black. So why are Babylon 5 Monster Hunt episodes so bad? Soul Hunter, Infection, Grail, This Abomination. They're some <laughs> of the worst episodes we've seen. So why yeah. is that? Why, why can't they do it right? I don't get it. The formula is pretty clear, right? You have the phase where people don't believe there's a monster. And then you have the phase where monster is picking people off. And then you have the phase where they set the trap and there's the final confrontation. You're right. The formula is pretty clear. They seem to always want to do something else. They wanted to, to spend time exploring the very, very brief relationship that oh, lasts God. all of three scenes. Between. Yeah. <laughs> and then the scenes with Depressional Barkley. They, they were doing too much in this episode. That's the problem. I mean, if you want to do an episode that's about the trauma of the soldiers from the war, I'm all for it. Like, yeah. I really liked those scenes. I would have watched more war stories with Depressional Murdkay. Did the romance plotline tell us anything about Stephen? Was it useful in any way? Oh, only that he's a cad. Have we considered even a cat? <laughs> just like I feel like this, he just needs something to touch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just imagining Franklin in Med Bay with it stroking a cat constantly, like Doctor Claw and Inspector Gadget. <laughs> yeah. So the obvious comparison here is Space Seed, the original series Star Trek episode where we first meet Khan, right? It has the exact same premise. They run across uh, an old-style long-haul cold ship. And it contains Ricardo Montalban. It was Khan. You know, greatest Star Trek villains. There's so much that could have been done to explore the premise here. A person traveling forward in time, and instead we get a lady who wonders why there's still war, and a fabled shadow servant monster from Jakar's book that managed to kill all of one homeless person before being gunned down by a couple of naval officers. So frustrating. It's so close to infection. It's so bad. We can easily say that this is the infection of season two. I think this episode really brings home the dire state of the neo-corporate dystopia created by JMS for Babylon 5. As a character in this episode, a veteran 
who could have really benefited from a strong social support system, counseling, education, job training, and instead he was left to fend for himself, to feed off the organs of others instead of being rehabilitated and given a place in society. Only a few episodes ago, Dr. Franklin could have really benefited from a surgeon who could operate without cutting things. I think of the possibilities. Instead, he gets gunned down like an animal. It's, it's... <laughs> I was wondering where you were going there, Joe. We've talked a lot about how the scripts that JMS doesn't write are crappy. Um... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're fucking terrible. <laughs> Was I supposed to talk around that? Like, But I want to know what direction, like what guidance did he give Scott Frost when he was writing the script? It was any? Did he let him watch the show? Like what preparation are these writers given? What frustrates me about this is a similar thing that frustrated me like Death Walker, right? Where where Sinclair just like does all these things that are completely out of character, completely kind of horrible. In this episode, it's like, why are you making Steven a creepy, disgusting person? Like that's not Steven normally. See, Harlan Ellison didn't leave instructions on on how to make characters consistent. He just left instructions on how to write a science fiction episode. Yeah, let's go to spoilers. I would never tell you anything that was not in your best interest. Leave now. No. Disobedience of yours. You do not understand. But you will. Uh, guess what, guys? I think the shadows are back. No. Are you guys no. getting the impression from the past couple of episodes that maybe the message is the shadows are back? I, I think I think maybe they're back. No. The League of Non-Aligned Worlds stands there in front of Shakar, who's interested <laughs> in whether the shadows are back. They're like, hey, guess what? We know all about how there were shadows a thousand years ago, and now they're summoning their forces again. Does he go talk to them? No. No. Sheridan and Ivanov are like, huh, I wonder what's happening in Zaha Doom. Did they go talk to, did they do? No. No. <laughs> Why? <laughs> we don't even call them shadows for another eight to 12 episodes. But yeah, it's, it's frustrating because it's pretty clear. They're here, they're back, they're doing shit. And no one seems to be talking to anyone else about that. Just too busy. Consumed by figuring out where chairs need to go and other diplomatic niceties. What wood they're made of. God damn it, you spoiled the next episode. Okay. The first, <laughs> what is the next episode? The first scene in the next episode. Our next episode is Spider in the Web. There are secret negotiations and Talia Winters is getting mind tortured for some reason. Sheridan's really bitchy, to say the <laughs> least. And Adrian Barbeau... There's a fucking ton of awesome guest stars in this episode. Adrian Barbeau, among others, guest stars. Lots of things don't make any fucking sense until you know that Lawrence Dottilio wrote the episode. I'm really looking forward to this one. This one's going to be a lot of fun, actually. Hey, listener. Our theme music is composed by Absent Realities, with additional music this episode by Delta Centauri and by Megabit Melodies. You can find us on Twitter at GraySectorPod or search up our Facebook page, GraySector, a Babylon 5 podcast. See ya. This we need to leave in. I'm just saying. Do it like Elvis. Thank you much. the scene up at the end here. I don't know why. Hold me. We'll clean it up in post. I just want to point out that the clear liquid that I'm drinking is sake, which is like 14% alcohol. But Joe's drinking grappa, which is like 50% alcohol. Oh, 40. It's only 40.
No. Oh, well, <laughs> it's only vodka. Probably okay. No big deal. <laughs> you guys are remarkably conscious. You want to talk to Ridley Scott. He's the, the king of fucking director's cuts. He's not satisfied <laughs> after one director's cut. He's like, I'm going to put out another one. And then then I'm going to put out another director's cut of the director's cut. How do you like that? Four director's cuts. Boom, boom, boom. You'll have to stare fixedly at the mic the whole time. You kind of have to, yeah. You can't blink. Otherwise, it'll sense fear. <laughs> It'll move closer to me and try to murder me. Instead of a weeping angel on it? Now that you mention it, hmm. I mean, only one person on this podcast has studied ethics in college a lot, way too much, to a useless extent. I took a humanities. A humanities? (laughs) A single humanity. I had to take, like, you know, all that stuff. When you start your statement with, I took a humanities... (laughs) That doesn't work to convince me. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't actually, what do you have a degree in? I have a history degree. Yeah. That's why Joe gets to make those faces every time I slaughter historical information. <laughs> He's entitled to this. Is linguistics a humanity? Uh, no, linguistics is actually a hard science. At least this is according to the linguistics graduate student that I dated for like 18 seconds. Hard science is stretching it. According to the internet... Linguistics is a human science, which real narrows it down as opposed to all those alien sciences out there. It may be compared with sociology, psychology, or anthropology. Because it's a fucking social science. All right. All right, Professor putting you on blast. So just so you guys know what kind of week I had, I was looking at a picture of a shambling mound from 5e, <laughs> and I thought, that looks like a relaxing lifestyle. <laughs> These oh, shamble God. places. Yeah, you just occasionally absorb things. Like End file. Due to budget cutbacks, portions of Grey Sector remain unfinished. Punk rock today. <laughs>